A number of years ago, I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. It's a, a sobering walk through display after display of atrocities uh, recalled and retold. Stories were told along the way of the little victories that some had seen from secret rooms in which to hide to death camps and how some survived. But there were stories of suffering too, given through uh, recordings and audio tapes or children's shoes of experimentation and extermination. Uh, many times hearing it was too much to bear. One question kept coming into my mind as I walked through this museum though, how did the people not see this happening? Why did so many in Germany not see it? And why instead did they participate in it? Well, one of the rooms in the Holocaust Museum answered the question for me, actually, in part. It was a darkened room, uh, fittingly dim for the evil that it recalled. And it, in it stood the silhouettes of two men under one banner. The banner read, The two-pronged tactics of the Third Reich and the silhouettes were of Hermann Goring and Joseph Goebbels. Goring, of course, was a violent man. His power was in his fists. Uh, blatant uh, displays of merciless force were his speciality, and that from a seat in government. The Gestapo, the Blitzkrieg, the concentration camps, they all had his bloody fingerprints all over them. And Goebbels, though, on the other hand, was a cunning man. His power was in his mouth. Subtle, sugary sayings of deceitful propaganda, that was his speciality. He played with minds and he preyed on hearts in order to take the feet of young men into war and actually raise the hands of a nation in salute. Together, they were two powerful arms of Hitler's evil regime, the Third Reich. Now, to me, that room in that Holocaust museum is, is pretty much an illustration of Satan's tactics here in Revelation 13. The banner over this chapter could be the two-pronged tactic of the Satanic Reich, the silhouettes, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth. Two powerful arms of Satan's war that he's waging against the church. And that's the war we're in. And last week, I explained why from Revelation 12. Jesus has won the decisive battle that seals both our salvation and Satan's fate. The cross was our D-Day, his return to come, our V-E day. But life in between those two dates will be hard for believers. And because Satan's time is short, uh, so is his temper, therefore he is malevolently enraged against the church. But how? How is he enraged against us? What tactics will he employ in this furious rage against God's saved people? Well, Revelation 13 says there are two tactics, and the first is this. In verses 1 to 10, number one, state persecution. State persecution. Now, verses 1 to 8 tell us that we can expect governments to wield their power against the church in various ways. Uh, government is what this beast from the sea uh, represents. We see in verses 1 to 4. Let me show you where I get that from. The description of the beast, first of all, in verses 1 to 2 is given 
Not so you can draw it, of course, but so that you can understand what it represents. So don't think Beast from the Sea Kraken. It's not the Kraken. Don't let fantasy novels or horror movies make you read something into the text that isn't there. It's symbolic. And scripture itself interprets the words. Verse 1 says he's just like Satan. That's how he's described. In chapter 12, verse 3, last week we saw that Satan was described with horns and heads and crowns that essentially represent his government, his rule over the entire world. Um, same goes here for this beast. He rules essentially as Satan's puppet. Verse 3 says so, with great authority. Verse 2, though, indicates that he's something of a superpower. Okay, this is this this reference here to these different types of beasts are essentially hearkening back to Daniel chapter 7. This is a vision of successive empires that would rule the world in the lead up to the arrival of Christ the first time. So in Daniel 7, a churning sea spews out four different beasts. And in verse uh, Revelation 13, it's one beast with, with the might of all four kingdoms combined. Now imagine that. Imagine the oppressive power of Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks and the Romans in one. You could pretty much hear John's original readers gulp. It's scary to Christians. But not to all. Uh, ruthlessness and brute power don't always put people off. People don't always see it. Indeed, some people covet that kind of power. People quite often covet God's omnipotence. Satan certainly does. But if we can't have that kind of power ourselves, then we'll identify with one who does and we'll celebrate it. And that's how you start to understand how people can go, can follow after certain governments, regimes, or even leaders. And that's what we find in verses 3 to 4, where the worship of this beast is described. Verse 3 says, The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Verse 4, sorry. People worshipped the dragon and the beast and asked, Who is like this beast? Now that sounds quite familiar. Um, there are lots of echoes in this passage again. But that essentially is a parody of Exodus chapter 15 verse 11. A song that celebrates God's people's immense victory in the aftermath of Pharaoh's and Egypt's defeat. It's a parody, except it's not funny. Not like Weird Al Yankovic, you can look that up. But these guys are serious. Even though Satan and his beasts intend their ruin and condemnation for these people that they govern and rule over, they love to put their hope in these rulers. Now in this day and age, I don't really feel like I need to elaborate on that. People who put their hope in powerful leaders. I mean, from American elections to our own indie reformation, um, uh, referen reformation, could be great if it's a, ref a reformation, but our indie ref debates, it's not hard to see people following parties and governments with zealous worship. Especially when those governments hold themselves out as messiahs for a nation's hopelessness. And if they zealously worship that government, well, we can be sure that they're going to turn a blind eye to the persecution of that church. The government that can do this, this and this and rescue us from that, that and that, well, they can do no wrong. How blinkered people in our worlds become.
Now this is what happens in verses 5 to 8, where we find explicitly stated the church, God's people, as a government target. Now, the work of the beast here in this section is essentially to tyrannise the church. In verses 5 and 6 he employs words. In verse 7 he starts to wield those goring fists. That's often how it works. It's like a boxing match, really. Um, the verbal teardowns come before the uppercuts start. Uh, you're hit with the insults the day before you're hit with the gloves. But so it is with Satan's tactics. He'll make us the butt of society's jokes before you get hit by the butt of a gun. Governments blow their own trumpets about how they are the only party, the only leaders who can truly deliver people from this mess. But And when they put it like that, you can understand why it's called blasphemy, as it says in verse 5. Because blasphemy, of course, isn't just calling God a bad name or using his name the wrong way. It's when you claim something for yourself that actually belongs to God as well. And when you do that, you rob God of his glory. And God said, I'm God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And he says, I am God, there is no other. I will give my glory. I will not give my glory to another. But make no mistake in this, Satan's fury will not just settle for words or for government legislation that might um, limit free speech or even to make Christians the the, the kind of most likely candidates for hate bill prosecution. He'll not just use words, he'll want to assault us, use those goring fists and shed blood. Now that's what Satan has done. Satan has wielded his goring like bloodthirstiness throughout the centuries. Blood has been shed on thousands of streets by oppressive governments tyrannizing Christians. John Allen, journalist and author for The Spectator, it wrote a number of years ago, and I must be about five or six years ago, um, that the, the global war on Christians is the greatest story never told in the 21st century so far. He quotes International Society for Human Rights, a secular group actually, with members in 38 nations worldwide who say that 80% of all religious acts of discrimination in this world are directed at Christians. That's, and last year, or in those years, the, the year leading up to the, the, the article itself, Christians face some form of discrimination in 139 countries, almost three quarters of the nations of the world. And 100,000 Christians die every year just for believing in Christ or, and refusing a government's order to stop believing in Christ. So Satan will not relent. And he wields his state-sponsored might in all kinds of ways in all kinds of places. Verse 7b actually says he'll do it everywhere the gospel is headed, to all peoples, all nations. Now I hear an objection in a sense when I talk about the government being used in this way. Uh, doesn't Romans talk about Christians obeying the government because they've been established by God's? Well, yes, it does, of course, although there's a kind of yes, but answer to that. Yes, a government governments are under God's sovereign control. And governments should be institutions of common grace, ordering society, and God uses them as means, even without them knowing it, for this purpose in certain places. But let's face it, none of these governments are Christians. No nation is Christian. 
There's no such thing, and there never has been. These nations are fallen. They are led by sinners. They have their own ideas of utopia that don't include God's. Their own morality is not based on God's word. Their security is found in military might, not God. Their comfort is found in technology and materialism, not in God and his Messiah. No, worst of all, every political power is self-aggrandizing and self-congratulatory in some way that robs God of his glory. Maybe in nations where Christianity is valued a little bit more, it tends to be that the church itself is more corrupt in those places. Works-based stuff or uh, idolatry is rampant or superstition. And at best, the church in the West is tolerated. But in our nation's so-called newfound wokeness, people like me, Christians like you watching, we are not just uh, a curse or archaic. Those are the terms that used to be used to describe us. No, people like me, we're now dangerous. So a whole new rhetoric ramping up in these last few years, and that makes us targets of all kinds of persecution. The hostility is growing. So what will make it go away? That's the question we're asking. The answer is nothing. So let's move on to another question. What are we going to do about it? Well, verses 9 to 10 give us the answer. This is the application for this first section as we look at the state-sponsored persecution. It's endurance. Starts with accepting that this type of persecution in its various forms is a very real possibility. Now, many don't accept that. That's why this needs to be said. But verses 9 and 10 tell us that we should really listen. If you've got ears to hear this, you really need to hear this. Because God in his sovereignty allows it. Okay, now that's not what we want to hear at times. And we want to hear that everyone who believes in Jesus is just going to be fine. They're going to cruise through this difficulty, through this storm. And nothing's going to happen at all. It's going to be like they're living bubble wrap lives. But that's not what it says. This text says if if in God's plan we're taken captive in order to show people that, that Jesus means more to us than their freedom, then into captivity we'll go. Or if we are facing a death penalty in order, if we're taken through that in order to show that Jesus means more to us than life, then to death we will go. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, of course, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is a call to face up to the reality of it. But also chapter 13 provides for us this call for endurance and faithfulness. That's what it meant for John while he was on Patmos. That's what it is for those in prison for their faith today. That's what it meant to John's readers, persecuted by emperors like Nero and then Domitian. And that's what it means for Christians today under King jo Kim Jong-un and others like him in nations like his. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit in those who trust God's word and believe that it isn't forever. That's what helps them endure. And one of the things that helps us, of course, is one of these time frames. We've got it in verse 5 again. This is the age of the church. 
this three and a half years, this 42 months, this 1,260 days. It's just symbolic. It's half as much time as it could be. It's a brief time. The end is soon. Christ will come and reward his faithful ones forever. And that's what it is. It's a call for endurance and a call for faithfulness. And trust you will be prepared for faithfulness. If you love Jesus, then your own name, as verse 8 says, is written in the Lamb's own book of life. And he'll provide grace for those trials. Now you're like, I don't feel like I've got the grace for that trials. I would say, don't worry. You'll get it when you need it. He's faithful to his people. We only have to read the stories of those who... Um, who did receive that kind of grace for the persecution they experienced, whether it was through oh, any kind of physical torture or even to the point of death. You can read about those in the Bible and throughout history, those for whom a lion's mouth or a hangman's noose um, held no fear. No, do as they did. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorned at shame, and sat down the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that's the first of Satan's tactics, the goring tactic, if you like, state persecution. Well, that's, what else did we see in chapter 13? False religion. Number two. False religion, you see this in verses 11 to 18. Now verses 11 to 17 tell us that we can expect other worldviews to deceptively corrupt the church. Okay, now I say worldviews in this section because this section I believe captures more than just what we might call recognised religions. It has to do, it has as much to do with ideologies and worldviews and philosophies that provide the the bedrock on which societies are built. Now, idolatry, I think, is what this beast from the earth represents. The description that you've got of this second beast from the earth in verses 11 and 12 is, uh, well, it's pretty scant, really. Verse 11 is all we get. He looks like a lamb, which initially sounds pretty encouraging because the lamb is what Revelation is all about. The lamb is the the worthy one, the lamb is the saviour. The lamb is the one who's holding the feast to which we're headed. But this is not the lamb. This is, this is like a, more like the big bad wolf. You know, it looks like granny, but sounds like a dog. Uh, so it can't be. This lamb is a poor impersonation of the real lamb. And he might look like a rescuer in some way, but his words, his mouth gives him away. Now remember that. He looks like an angel, but he sounds like a devil. Um, his mouth gives him, gives him away, not by how he sounds, but really in what he says. Uh, he's a liar and an accuser, as we've seen. And uh, as we saw with Goebbels, his mouth, this beast, his mouth is his weapon. Hitler himself said about... 10 years before the Second World War, that propaganda is a terrible weapon in the hands of an expert. And Goebbels proved just that. But he's not a patch on the religious ideologies that run alongside tyrannical governments like the ones mentioned in here. They do. They always do, actually. Every government has its own worldview, its own creed, its own morality, its own religion. 
all to reinforce, whether subtly or overtly, Satan's rule. And verse 12 says that's where he, this beast, gets his authority from Satan, from the approval of the state, first of all, the beast, the first beast, behind which is Satan himself. So he's orchestrating it all. He's the, the puppeteer. But the activity of the second beast is outlined for us then in verses 12 to 17. Let's dash through this. First of all, what does he do? He makes people worship the first beast. It's like a worship leader. Magnifying the state or the government or the, the national leader as the people's messiah. The repetition of this fatal wound, now healed thing, mentioned three times throughout the whole chapter, is really just another way, a key way of communicating to us the, the counterfeit nature of the whole experience, the whole thing. It's a false authority over the earth. God's a real authority over the earth. It's a false kind of worship. Not worth comparing with the true worship of the true gods. But this is what's going on. This repetition of the fatal wound now healed is to communicate the counterfeit nature of the idolatry and almost the competition that it creates with Christ and the truth of his kingdom. I mean, who else do we know that had a, a fatal wound but looks healed? Well, the lamb's described in that. Jesus, the lamb, is described in that way. That lamb that looked like as if it had been slain. Uh, we saw that in chapter 5. But while, but it's all counterfeit. The beast does his best to look unbeatable, but he's already defeated. The mark on one of his heads is has been inflicted on him by the serpent crusher, Jesus himself. But while this beast has time, he dupes. Don't underestimate him, though. He's actually not that easy to spot. Verse 13 says that he'll perform the signs that make everybody think he's authentic, that makes everybody go, wow. Uh, and verse 14 just clarifies the deception. It actually states that it's deceptive. It's smoke and mirror stuff, all to reinforce the idolatry of the people of the world. And it's not the first time in God's word that we've seen Satan and his agents exercise power in miraculous or seemingly supernatural ways. The signs here are essentially a counterfeit of Moses' ministry. The fire from heaven, a counterfeit of Elijah's ministry. Now verse 14b says that this uh, beast ordered an idol, an image to be set up, and, and he carries the economic clout to make people bow down. It's like forced worship of this idol. And that's what the talk of this mark is all about. This mark of on the forehead. Now, um, again, that's some counterfeit in there as well. The forehead was a place where in God's law, in Deuteronomy, it said that you should write his word. And it's not talking about getting a tattoo across your forehead. It's a, it's a figurative thing, of course. Write this truth of God's and place it, figuratively speaking, so that it's close to your mind, where the knowledge is stored and called to mind quickly so that you can choose wisely the paths into which you should walk. Now, verse 15 then shows us what we suspected in verse 11, that he looks like a lamb, but this beast really is a wolf. He's got these, uh, he's got, he's like Frankenstein, really waking something up that was dead. He somehow manages to breathe life, figuratively speaking, into this thing. It's uncertain exactly what that means, but he creates 
an idol that puts people to death. The lives of all who don't conform to the pressure cooker of whatever cultural creed is upheld. Now, what does that make you think of? Setting up an idol and death threatened for those who don't worship? Well, again, go back to the Old Testament. It sounds exactly like Daniel 3, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like the, the statue that was set up and that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to it. It was worship the image or die. And the lesson there, of course, was, well, the, the, the presence of Christ. He's with us in death, either to rescue us from it or to take us through it to himself. And you can understand why that reference might be so useful right here for John and for his readers. You see, Emperor Domitian was declaring himself to be Lord and God in this time, and temples were being set up all across the Roman world for emperor worship. And if you wanted to um, trade in these cities that were hotbeds for uh, commerce and economic growth and for progress and so on, then basically you needed to have a certificate. How do you get a certificate? Well, you get a certificate by offering some incense and paying your dues to the emperor cult at the emperor's temple. Okay, we looked a little bit at this in one of the seven churches earlier in uh, the series. But those without a certificate, well, sometimes if they were, if they met a very ruthless civilian or soldier, they would be killed. Or, more commonly, they would be left to become poor, to become destitute. To be in the kind of situation where they did not even have the means of feeding themselves or their own family. For finding help elsewhere. It was a devastating thing for them. And for some, it just became too much. The temptation for God's people back then was to give in. To pay their dues. Oh, it's not really worship, is it? I mean, I really actually worship Christ. But actually, to do so would be to go against what God's word says and to pass up an opportunity to glorify him by standing firm. But what is this name of the beast or the number of the name that we've got here in verse 18? Well, it is hotly debated. Uh, some say it's this kind of gematria, you know, this where, where letters in ancient languages had some kind of numeric value so that you can count through the letters and you can figure out that, um, you know, each somebody has a name. So oh, it's Nero Caesar or it's Mikhail Gorbachev or whoever. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of names that have been offered here. It's, I don't know, it kind of sounds like one of those little spy kits that you get when you're a kid uh, for Christmas. You've got to figure out and do all the numbers and the letters and match them all up. But it's not like that at all. I think there's another explanation for it. I think this... Uh, the text does say we should try and calculate it, so try and figure something out about it. So what is it? Well, the one, the, the explanation that I find most convincing for this, and you should go and check it out for yourself, because I might be a false teacher. You should check it out yourself. This is that this number is metaphorical, okay? Metaphorical. I would say that that's what's in keeping with everything we've seen so far in the book, and we'll see towards uh, all the way through to the end. And it makes sense that whenever you think through the specific quote here of, of 666 being the number of the man, 
then essentially it's not, it's not, yeah, it's, it's a symbolic shortcoming of the number you would expect for God. What's the number for God? Seven, perfect. It's the number of perfection. So what's less than God? Well, if God would be 777, the beast would be 666. In anywhere, in any case, we're told that this is the number of the beast. And the beast here represented not as a certain person to come at the end of time, although 2 Thessalonians 2 is your place to go to to talk about the man of lawlessness. But this beast here, I think, more rightly suits the description of false ideologies, religious views and worldviews that merge with authoritarian and tyrannical governments that have no place for God and no place for his gospel. I think that's what we see the church here, symbolized by pictures where, in, in this text, where, you know, the, the, the elders, the women, the witnesses, um, and number, they're symbolized by the number 144,000. So I think the church age, I think the, the false religion here is symbolized by a picture of this beast from the earth and the number 666. Uh, I think that's what it means. But in summary then, what is the second beast? Well, if the beast of the sea is a symbol of the state, I think the beast of the earth is the symbol of its creed. Christians will be pressurized into conformity to that creed. And when they don't, like Daniel and his friends, they'll find the heat turned up. They'll find pressure applied. So if verses 1 to 17 tell us what we can ex that we can expect other worldviews to deceptively corrupt the church and to put pressure and heat on the church, verse 18 tells us what we need to live for Christ in an age like this. Wisdom. We need wisdom to see worldviews for what they are. As Satan inspired, okay? It does sound daft when I say it, doesn't it? It sounds odd. It sounds peculiar. At first, anyway. But if it's not a biblical worldview, then what actually is it? I mean, there is no neutral ground when it comes to existence or faith. And maybe the fact that it sounds so daft is an indication that we're, I don't know, maybe even a little more duped. Maybe a little more prone to believing the lie than we realise. I mean, just because we enjoy certain freedoms here in Scotland, we can be tempted to think, you know, all is well. We're led by governments in Holyrood and Westminster who... Though not quite perfect, you know, they're all right, they're doing a good job. You know, Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon may not be our favourites, but are you really trying to tell me that there's Satan's behind them? Well, I guess you can start to think about the kind of things that are being taught, the kind of policies that are passed. When you think about what the sex education curriculum is going to look like in Scottish schools if passed, well, that, that might make us 
question who's behind it. And what about our universities? Is the Christian worldview validated as as intellectually viable as Darwinism? Or what about free speech? Have we have you seen the, the hate crime bill that is being debated and that the SNP are trying to pass? You know, if passed, my words could well be raked up at a later date and held against me in court with an accusation of hate speech. Well, maybe verse 10 doesn't seem so daft after all. If anyone is to go into, into captivity, into captivity, they will go. Well, what do these governments stand for if they don't stand for the truth of God and a biblical worldview? The bottom line is we need wisdom to navigate days like these. And this is precisely why Jesus is such a great shepherd and pastor to us. To give us the insight into Satan, why he's angry and enraged against us in chapter 12, and his tactics in chapter 13, and then to talk about his end in chapter 14, but to talk us through these things so that we're not unaware of his schemes. To make us ready. Indeed, Jesus himself said, don't be deceived by false messiahs and so on. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, even if, if possible, even to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you all of this ahead of time. It's in Mark 13. And he wants us to be wise. He wants us to take what's in God's word and put it in here so that all the way along, whether we are watching the news and trying to discern and figure out what's being said and what the implications may be for the church and for Christians, or whether we're in a situation with our friends and trying to navigate our way through a conversation, or whether the heat really is turned up and in our nation, some kind of woke crowd or whatever just starts to, I don't know, turn, persecute, mistreat, or the government itself starts to put a block on things. What are we going to do? We're going to be discerning and we need God's word to be just that. Well, now having looked at this, I hope it's a little bit clearer. It's tricky, but we know something of Satan's tactics he works through state persecution and false religion. He works to wield his power violently against the church in some places and in others to do his best to deceptively corrupt it. Together with the assurance though that we find in chapter 12 of certain victory, this chapter says that while we wait for Christ's return, we're going to need endurance to keep going and wisdom to know how to do that in order to know how to honour the one who by his grace and his goodness, even before the foundation of time, wrote our names down in the Lamb's book of life and sealed us for him. How gracious and how precious are those truths and those encouragements in our walk through this world. That's why we pray 
to God with gratitude. Four, our authorities and our governments asking for peace and more common grace. And that's why we sing. Songs like In Christ Alone, which remind us truly of where our only hope is found. A song which includes these words, No power of hell, no scheme of man, can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. <laughs>